0: The owls won't see us in here. A cup of tea would be very nice. Shut your eyes and you'll burst into flames. podcast for both first-time and veteran viewers of Twin Peaks, the mystery series that ran for two seasons in the early 90s on ABC, followed by a feature film and, 25 years later, a limited series on Showtime. I avoid spoilers, however, at the end of each of these episodes, I do include a section called The Shape of the Show, and sometimes Early Speculation. Both sections avoid any actual plot spoilers, but the first discusses the general shape of the series, if, but not how, the mystery is answered for example, while the second dips into some of the predictions fans and critics were making back when these episodes aired, when they had no idea what to expect. In case you prefer to just focus on the episode itself, these sections are preceded by a warning and quick musical break, but for the most part, first-time viewers should be fine listening to this material. If you're a new listener who has just discovered this episode and wants to know more about the podcast, check out episode zero, show format. This past week, the only other podcast that I put out was uh, oh, actually two of them. I did a John Thorne conversation with the uh, creator of Wrapped in Plastic magazine, Twin Peaks fan magazine of the 90s and 2000s, and great commentary up to today through his books and podcasts and other formats. We had a three hour conversation with two hours of it on my Patreon uh, for $5 a month patrons. So definitely check that out if you've seen all the Twin Peaks and want to hear more. And also, on Wednesday, I put out another episode of my Lost in the Movies podcast on the on the Lost in the Movies feed, uh, all linked below, of course, on the film Elephant, not the uh, Gus Van Zandt 2003 film, but a 1989 film by Alan Clark made for British television about the uh, troubles in Northern Ireland, told in an unconventional way. And there was a great discussion that emerged out of that. A guest wrote in, had some thoughts about it from seeing it at the time, and read some other comments on it from uh, critics and so forth. So that was another episode that uh, I thought would be interesting to share with everybody. And of course, this morning, the illustrated companion went up on my site with uh, screenshots for all the categories, every topic discussed in all of this week's podcasts, character rankings, Time Magazine cover, just a nice visual for everything to accompany what you're listening to so make sure to check that out in the show notes below this is the sixth episode of the first season and is referred to as such on netflix but i'll probably tend to refer to it as episode five following the dvd and blu-ray designations during its german broadcast the episode was dubbed cooper's dreams and although unofficial this episode title is used on many streaming services and associated media On screen, Cooper and Harry Truman follow clues from Jacques' apartment to discover his cabin and interview the Log Lady's log along the way. James and Donna meet with Maddie. Ben and Jerry throw a party for Icelandic investments, where Ben conspires against Catherine with Josie and Leland has a dancing breakdown. Shelley shoots Leo, and Audrey waits for Cooper in bed. And now for our three big questions. What is Twin Peaks? Who is Agent Cooper? And who is Laura Palmer? What is Twin Peaks? Certain episodes really celebrate the community of Twin Peaks, and this is one of them, even if Jerry doesn't think much of his neighbors. Then again, does Ben? The welcoming party is intriguing in part because of that explicit best and brightest tag. Here, as anywhere else, there are different social strata. Who is welcomed into the small towns elite, and who isn't? Military officer Major Briggs, of course. Catherine, the sister of a late-town patriarch and, by necessity, her salt-of-the-earth husband. But meanwhile, Shelley and Leo quarrel in their hovel. Successful but literally blue-collar Norma probably works late while Hank prowls about, and mechanic Ed waits up for Nadine to return from her desperate entrepreneurial gesture. Maybe once she's a drape-runner tycoon, she'll be invited to these shindigs, too. A thug like Jacques wouldn't be welcome even if he wasn't hiding across the border, and the log lady is likely as uninterested in escorting her block of wood to the Great Northern as Ben would be in having her. Leland held the keys to this throne room less than a week earlier, an employee to be sure, but a skilled, highly valued professional. However, his tragedy has made him toxic to the Horns, even if they can't figure out a way to politely tell him to get lost. Even the respectable Haywards seem a little too modest for this gathering, and the sheriff could probably come if he asked, but the horns would rather the simple fellow didn't. Anyway, is the soul of Twin Peaks really here in the stylized woodsiness of this upscale resort? Or is it buried out in the actual forest, amidst tall trees and isolated log cabins, harboring secrets that somehow everyone can sense without seeing? Is it split between the two? Who is Agent Cooper? A Cooper gets cranky here a side we've glimpsed before but never quite this emphatically. But Frost, the character's co-creator, effortlessly weaves in other sides of the persona alongside the there-are-days-like-this exasperation. His eyes are wide like an eager adolescent when handling illicit contraband. He's bemused but unsurprised to discover connections to his dream life in real-world crime scenes, and he's confidently mature as he flirts with a youthful admirer after checking to make sure she's not too youthful and astonished but still composed to find that same beautiful young woman in his bed. Perhaps most notably, Frost hedges hard on Cooper's receptivity to the log lady. The detective's inherent skepticism is not a reasoned position, but a limited perspective he immediately realizes he needs to get over. Well, stumbling in doing so. Here is elsewhere. Watch your step, city slicker, Harry teases the FBI agent. Cooper is contrasted, not always favorably, with the common wisdom of the locals. And he also demonstrates that identifiably female modes of authority present a challenge for him. For all his love of dreams and Tibet, he's, pardon the expression, a babe in the woods when it comes to tea time in the log lady's cabin. However well established as a fixture of Cooper's persona, keep this flawed humanity in mind when David Lynch returns to the detective's, I mean, the director's, chair. Who is Laura Palmer? For well over 20 minutes of episode 5, we continue along a familiar trajectory. Laura is the center of a sprawling crime scene, a distant motivation for a family member's traumatic breakdown, and a wispy, elusive presence haunting friends who can't decide what's more important, her vague memory or their own immediate needs. Even as we saw her surprisingly peaceful corpse in the pilot, and even more so when her physical presence has become so distant, Laura is slipping into the realm of diffuse myth rather than tangible individual. Until, that is, Jacoby cracks Bobby's shell. What pours forth is rather astonishing, one of the best, sharpest, and deepest scenes of the series so far. All the more surprising given that Lynch is often considered the creator more drawn to Laura's inner life, a feature that admittedly we haven't gotten much exposure to yet, given the character of his episode 2. But as Bobby and Jacoby collaborate to paint a living, breathing portrait of a truly tormented soul, the smiling picture frame shatters before our eyes. We're finally looking at much more than just the chalk outline of Laura Palmer. She wasn't a symbol or a conduit. She was flesh and blood. She suffered, she lived, moved, and talked. This is a powerful revelation. She said, people tried to be good, but they were really sick and rotten, Her most of all, and every time she tried to make the world a better place. Something terrible came up inside her and pulled her back down into hell. It took her deeper and deeper into the blackest nightmare. And every time it got harder to go back up to the light. The feel of the episode is a nice mix of efficiency and meditation. Frost and Glatter creating room for a slice of Twin Peaks that functions both as a narrative engine and as a mood piece. Has there ever been a show that so emphatically has a foot in both worlds? When people think of Twin Peaks, they think of Who Killed Laura Palmer and the frenzy of speculation surrounding that question, but they also think of little moments that stand out less as narrative development than artistic flourish. It's About the World, Not the Story was a common refrain, especially when David Lynch launched the series. Yet, if the mystery is just what Hitchcock would have called a MacGuffin, It's one of the most enthusiastically embraced MacGuffins of all time. Episode 5 captures this dual identity better than most. It finds a nice middle ground mood between fast-paced action and unrushed contemplation, between the boisterous Icelanders of the hotel and the melancholy music of the cabin in the woods. I might compare this mood to a late spring or early summer day, when the air is fresh but not quite warm. Things are opening up, but the buzz still feels low-key and relaxed. The best ahead of us. It's the kind of thing you almost have to come across naturally rather than consciously cultivate, a compliment to the filmmaker's instincts rather than a slight on the obvious amount of preparation that went into it. In its own distinct way, this is one of a handful of quintessential season one episodes, and it forms the centerpiece of my favorite, and certainly the tightest, trilogy of episodes from the entire original run. This is the first episode directed by Leslie Linka Glatter. She's the only season one director without a prior connection to David Lynch, as far as I know, although they do share a similar, uh, they're alumnus of a similar pro of the same program, uh, AFI, but uh, not at the same time. Her big break in TV came from another famous Hollywood director born in 1946, Steven Spielberg. In 1986, she made her debut in the medium with No Day at the Beach, an episode of the Spielberg-produced series Amazing Stories set during the invasion of Italy in World War II and depicting an unexpected hero played by Charlie Sheen the very same year he appeared in Platoon. Spielberg must have seen Gladder's Academy Award-nominated short film debut a year earlier. In an interview clip I've linked in the show notes, Gladder describes the origin of tales of meeting and parting about a Japanese soldier whose mercy comes back around later in the war. Originally a dancer and choreographer touring Asia, Gladder once met an old man in a Tokyo cafe who became her mentor. And the first thing he told her was that meeting is the beginning of parting. When you know this is not sad, you will know something great. Gladder continued to direct for Amazing Stories, following up with a sci-fi-ish story about a janitor played by Sean Penn's father Leo, a blacklisted screenwriter, who becomes a genius overnight. And perhaps most notably in relation to Twin Peaks, She told the story of an old couple who hang on to their belief in the survival of a daughter who disappeared in the woods 40 years earlier. And she directed two more war-related stories, Into the Homeland, about a father's search for his daughter who has been kidnapped by neo-Nazi paramilitaries, and an episode of Vietnam War Story, another anthology like Amazing Stories, this episode about two nurses, one experienced, one a novice. Glatter has had a very distinguished career in television, in addition to one feature film, but as with the writers, I'll save these for later episodes because she is Peake's most prolific director, next to David Lynch. Unsurprisingly, Glatter loved working on Twin Peaks. Unlike her anthology experiences, she was stepping into a previously established world and given the opportunity to riff on what had been developed and add her own flourishes. In Brad Duke's Reflections oral history book, she noted, David and Mark were very involved. They were the best possible collaborators but when you were directing, no one was staring over your shoulder in any way. But they were always available as great springboards. She went on to say, it was very much like doing a film. Once you turned in your director's cut, they didn't change very much. There was a very tight shot I did in Jacques Renaud's Cabin of a Needle going into the groove of a record, and I remember David saying to me, Les, this is a great shot. Can't we hold on that much longer? The shot was on the screen for an inordinate amount of time, which would just never happen now. That was a very Twin Peaks kind of image, the details of life. Gladder came up with a lot of memorable shots in this episode, including the triple and then quadruple profile close-ups of characters, among the images in Twin Peaks most suitable for hanging on a wall, and also the zoom out from the crow's eye. It was also her idea to feature a group of Native Americans, in her uh, backstory and direction, political activists with AIM, the American Indian Movement, in the Great Northern Canteen, which may have inspired other directors, to bring distinctive conventions and convocations into the hotel, although I think there was already a group of Girl Scouts in one episode a bit earlier. The director also very gracefully moves her camera to subtly reframe the characters and follow or underscore the action, which is especially notable after Tim Hunter's more composition and cutting-based approach. For the last episode, I shared a review I'd written in 2008, which praises Hunter's long takes, But in retrospect, this strikes me as strange. While there are some moments of sustained shots, as in almost all Twin Peaks episodes, Tim Hunter is usually more fond of cutting the scenes into building block-style units. In fact, both Tina Rathborn and Hunter broke with the first three episodes by not featuring a single one-take scene. Gladder resumes this tradition, the one begun by Bobby's interrogation in the pilot, Audrey's first argument with her dad in episode one, and Ed visiting Norma at the diner in episode two. First scene between Ben and Josie in his office is all one shot, and it follows another scene, Maddie calling Donna, which almost doubles the effect, breaking the duration only for a necessary insert of a cassette tape. We will see Gladder again before this season ends, but not behind the camera. Stay tuned. For the writers, this was Mark Frost's first solo teleplay for Twin Peaks. As such, and at least one other episode this season, provide interesting lodestars for anyone trying to parse out Frost versus Lynch's contributions to Twin Peaks. An elegant procedural that guides us logically from one location to another, and from, in a sense, civilization into the wilderness, the script deftly balances the mundane and mystical. Many scenes balance exposition with character flourishes, such as when Harry gives Coop the rundown on shock, but the FBI agent is mostly interested in donuts, or the dynamic between the townspeople, the log lady, and the confused Cooper inside her cabin. Some of this we'll have to save for the structural analysis and Coop's character breakdown, but with Frost officially working on his own for the first time, even if I suspect he played the leading role in writing episodes one and two, we're getting a strong sense of what draws him to the material, and it isn't simply the genre conventions and quirky banter we might suspect from Hill Street Blues. The context for this production, this was the fourth episode to go into production in the fall of 1989, probably drawing close to Thanksgiving at this point. When Gladder speaks of talking to Lynch in her reminiscences, she may be thinking of later episodes, but it's also possible that the director was more of a presence than he had been earlier in the first season. Wild at Heart, well, deep in post-production, had probably long ago wrapped production by now. IMDb lists the wrap date as January 30th, but considering that's nearly six months after shooting began, and Wild at Heart had a relatively modest budget and pretty tight schedule, I'm guessing that refers to reshoots, if anything. And Lynch was also getting ready to direct his own episode, belatedly, now that he could turn his attention back to Twin Peaks, so he may have been around on set. I find myself wondering how much Lynch and Frost spoke about the contents of this episode, or at least the broader arcs that it contains. In particular, the Log Lady is such a Lynchian character, played by his close friend from Eraserhead days, and a variation on a gag they came up with way back then. But in episode 5, she also feels very Frostian, touching on a vein of woodsy folklore, a kind of archetypal wise crone, if slightly young for that role at the time, with a literary antecedent in Frost's most beloved Dickens novel, too. She's a mix of mythological pedigree and tragic personal backstory, both of which Frost loves. If her image and personality is Lynch's, this episode suggests that a good bit of her mythos belongs to Frost. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts to share this podcast with others. You can also become a patron on patreon.com slash lostinthemovies. Tomorrow we'll talk about who killed Laura Palmer, the questions... Uh, the clues that this episode brings to the fore and uh also the structure of the episode how it's constructed i think there's a very interesting kind of um division of the storytelling in this that is worth diving into so see you tomorrow to talk about that